The bell is officially sounded for the most important match ever held in the Mid-South Coliseum. A loser-leave-town match, which we have had before, but never involving two greatest stars of championship wrestling over the last several years. Jerry the King Lawler, Bill Superstar Dundee, and this match will be to the finish. There will be a winner and loser, and one man will be through in Memphis, Tennessee. Yellow again, everybody. That was the late, great Lance Russell right along ringside and ready to go 35 years ago, calling one of the biggest Monday nights in Memphis wrestling history. The first series of loserly towel mats between the territory's longtime stars, Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. I'm Scott Bowden, and here's my honorary Kentucky Colonel, the great Brian Last, to tell you all about today's special edition of the KFR podcast. That's right, Scott. Today, we have an extra crispy guest lined up, as he was there that night 35 years ago, sitting right along ringside with Lance and all the big stars of the early 1980s for Jerry Jarrett's championship wrestling, including the elder Double J himself, and the fabulous Jackie Fargo, ladies and gentlemen, the legendary manager and host whoa, of the Jim whoa, 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 What? I, did we talk? I, I kind of I kind of want to make the announcement. You, <laughs> and <laughs> you just told me what? to tell the folks all about it. All right, all right, all right. I know, but you know, the guy was one of my heroes growing up. And uh, I'm sure that means a lot to him. Really? Did, did, did he say that? Sure, he told me so. Cool. All right, you've been practicing this little <laughs> intro. Now. No, 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 I haven't. <laughs> all right. Well, look, if you want to do it, that's fine. It is, after all, your show. That's right. And without me... There would be no show. I know, I know. Go right ahead. <sighs> all right. Actually, this introduction is so big, it gets its own intro. We'll be right back with my introduction of today's totally original extra, <laughs> extra kiss me guest right after this king size message. About uh, what has been going on, and this young man is one who is never at a loss for words, especially since uh, he has another guy with him who's never at a loss for words. Here he is, Sam Bass. He's followed by Jerry Lawler, and I almost said Jerry the King Lawler. I see he's got his crown. Bill Dundee says you're no longer the King of Memphis. He's the King. Well, you know, I watched, I watched little Bill's interview, and it was, it was funny to say the least, wasn't it, Sam? You know, he said some things that weren't quite true, but then again, he made some statements that had a little bit of truth to him. He said, I'm not any longer the king of Memphis. And to a certain extent, he may be right, because I don't know if I any longer want to be the king of Memphis. From now on, you people can just refer to me as the king, because, you know, it's, it's just like a little romance. That's what it was like, but now the romance is all over. You know, they say there's a thin line between love and hate. And Sam Bass asked me last Monday night after the match, he said, Jerry, I really, I really just, I can't understand it. What is the reason for it? He said, for months and months, these people have been behind you. The people of Memphis have loved you. They've listened to you every word. You've been their hero, their idol. And now they've turned against you in the wink of an eye. He said, I just can't understand it. And I said, well, Sam, I can understand it. Because... All the time that they were cheering for me and hollering for me and looking up to me, 
in the back of their mind, baby, there was that little bit of resentment. And all it took to bring that resentment out was that one loss to Bob Armstrong. And I'll admit I did lose the match. Like I said, I lost the battle, but I won the war. It didn't matter to all the people of Memphis that I broke Bob Armstrong's ribs. It didn't matter to the people of Memphis that I fractured Bob Armstrong's nose and laid him up in a hospital, and he's out of wrestling for months now. That didn't matter. All that mattered was that I got beaten. You know, they crowded around that ring, and I heard them talking, man. They said, Jerry Lawler, you're washed up, ain't you, boy? Lost that match. You must be through. You has been. I'll admit it's true. You people have never seen me lose before. But you didn't look at Bob Armstrong and see the condition he was in. You were standing around that ring saying, you better go get Sam Bass back. Well, I'll tell you what, I listened to it till I got fed up to right here with it. So that's exactly what I did. I went and got Sam Bass back, baby. And you're not going to see me lose anymore in that ring. Never again will you see that. I know what it was. That, like I said, it was a resentment in the back of, in the back of you people's mind. I, I don't really know what it's like to be a common person like you people. But I can almost imagine, you know, everybody, everybody needs somebody that they can look up to and idolize. And that's what I gave you people, somebody that you could call your children in here and tell them, look, son, there's what you need to eat, drink all your milk, eat all your food and grow up to be a man like Jerry Lawler. That's what you could tell your kids. Listen to them. See? That's my people over there. When we come down to talking about facts, the truth is not always good to hear, but ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you the truth, whether you like it or not. I'm sick and tired of trying to be Mr. Nice Guy. You know what? You people are really not very likable people. I really, I have a lot of respect, or a little respect, for jerks like Eddie Marlin and Tommy Gilbert, because they try... And I know, I realize now because I tried, I realize just how hard it is to be nice to you people. You little jerks come running up to me with a little scrap of paper and a pencil and say, give me your autograph. You should come crawling on your hands and knees and say, please, King, do me the honor of giving me your autograph. I should be selling them. Well, don't ask me for no autographs anymore, brothers and sisters, because I'm going to turn a deaf ear on you. I'm sick and tired of you. I'm through with all of you. Don't call me the king of Memphis. Just call me the king from now on. I'm fed up with it. Now let's talk for just a minute about that shrimp Bill Dundee. He said, I'm not wrestling Jack Briscoe. I got news for you. You got your wires crossed, punk. I am wrestling Jack Briscoe. That match is already signed. This match is simply for the Tennessee representative to see who's going to wrestle for the Southern Heavyweight Championship. A lot of matches were held all across states and country last week, and there were winners. We've already heard some of the winners in the matches. Dick the Bruiser, Bobo Brazil. There's going to be some mighty elite company there, and wouldn't you look funny in a tournament with them, Bill Dundee? <laughs> You're not even in our class, baby. You're not in the same class as me and Dick the Bruiser and Bobo Brazil. You're right down there along with Tommy Gilbert and Eddie Marlin. And jerks like that, Tojo Yamamoto and Tommy Rich, that's your speed. You're not up there with the superstars, baby. you got a long way to go. And Monday night, you stood out here and told all the people, well, let them be your people, because I don't want them no more, Bill Dundee. You tell them, baby. You, I don't need them. 
You know, you people don't realize what I did for you. You you stand here with that little sign on your mouth. Hey, that's right. You stand here with that little smirk on your face. Don't give me the wind up. I'll talk all day if I want to. You stand here with a little smirk. Don't point your finger at me, baby. You and Lance Russell. If you don't mind, let me hold this for my boy, will you? This jerk here and Lance Russell, they were nobodies. The only reason when you walk down the street today, people don't say, there goes Lance Russell and Dave Brown. They say, there goes Banana Nose and that other geek that Lawler talks about on TV. <laughs> Nobody says I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. They say I'm from Lawler's town, baby. That's what I did for you people. I put you on the map. You don't appreciate it, so I'm through with you. And Bill Dundee, I'm going to show you. You can have these people, and I'll show you what good they are Monday night because I'm going to walk over you like a piece of garbage in that ring, baby, and I'm going to be the Tennessee representative, and I'm going to come out wearing the Southern Heavyweight Championship, and it's going to be just like it used to be. Ain't that right, Sam? That's right, just like it used to be. You're looking at the men in Memphis right now, baby. We'll see you tonight, Dave and Ripley, baby, if you want to ride up there and watch a good match. Lawler turned against the people. He'll be going down there against Monday night, uh, Bill Dundee, in the main event. It will be uh, part of the elimination tournament to determine Tennessee's representative for the Southern Junior Heavyweight title. That's coming up Monday night down at the Coliseum. Take just a minute. We'll be back with you. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. As we mentioned in our opening, we are honoring the 35th anniversary of one of the best bouts ever held in Memphis, which was also featured around the territory's loop, earning one of the biggest money weeks ever for promoter Jerry Jarrett. Now, this series about featured Jarrett's two biggest handpicked stars who worked practically the same match with the same finish to huge crowds in Lexington, Memphis, Nashville, and Louisville, June 2nd through the 7th, 1983, with a loser-leave-town stipulation and the AWA Southern Heavyweight title hanging in the balance. With a rushed yet still effective build-up through heated promos and not one but two different go-home shows and good old-fashioned storytelling, fans filled the buildings in each town, drawing 120,000-plus combined, which would be about three hundred grand today. And even more impressive, with the exception of Lexington, those were towns where Jarrett promoted cards weekly. And they all came to witness Jerry the King Lawler defeat superstar Bill Dundee to regain his belt and finally rid the area of his perennial rival and former ally and what many fans declared the best match they ever saw in the territory. Now, behind the scenes, Dundee's departure also resulted in other key names leaving the area, including our guest today. But which bout was the best? When people discuss the classic 83 Loser Leaves Town match, most folks I know automatically think of the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. But little did we young Memphians realize, Lawler and Dundee had already wrestled the same match twice already. So it's no wonder they had everything perfected by the time they hit Mempho with two days rest. So that tells me the best performance must have been at the Coliseum. Our guest today is one of the few individuals who was not only in attendance for all four bouts, but I believe he was also at ringside, no less. He's probably seen more Lawler-Dundee matches in person than any human being alive, with the possible exception of referee Jerry Calhoun, who probably has no recollection of most of the bouts, <laughs> being knocked momentarily unconscious by errant punches during most of them. I'm counting on, on his photographic memory, if you will, to shed some light on this 83 series and why this feud clicked with fans while the 79 program between <laughs> the King and the Superstar did not. He is a former manager of champions with a stable that has included Norman Frederick Charles III, King Carl Fergie, The Angel, Jesse Bard, Duke Myers, and Apocalypse. 
Today, he is recognized as the country's most popular cult leader since L. Ron Hubbard. He is the only wrestling personality whose podcast is closely monitored by the Secret Service. Ladies and gentlemen, James E. Cornett. Well, thank you very much, Scott. I wish we had more time here on the program, but it's been good joining you. And, and <laughs> it's going to have a good night. And see, and you know, and you were you were cruising along there on Easy Street until you botched up one thing, is you didn't prep ahead of time and ask me. But I was not there for all four of them. You weren't okay. And I, right. but I'll tell you why here shortly as we delve into it. But I, I the, the you were right. The Coliseum was the best one because it was Memphis and that atmosphere. But it just. All of it was incredible, and and we'll talk about that in in a second too. But I am I am happy to uh, to be on the program and share most of my knowledge and and also some of the background. And I can tell you for one thing why eighty three clicked and seventy nine didn't, and etc. As we get into this, but hey, you're fucking this dog. I'm just holding its head. So you're the leader here. Where should we go first? <laughs> Seems like you could have reworded that a little differently, but uh, okay. <laughs> Let's fuck the dog. Um, now the now the eighty three bout is uh, unfortunately I was not in attendance. What? Yeah, I had dude. <sighs> I I know I was playing baseball that summer. Oh oh, Sid. Okay, and Sid. Bout. I know. Hey, well, no, but <laughs> but back then, you know, but you didn't just skip a game on a whim. You know, I was a starting first baseman, so oh, I was oh, not there. Well, there you go, Pete Rose. There's and, no way the fucking. <laughs> they could have done without you for the biggest match in modern history. One of the, the, you said matches in Memphis. I've seen matches in a lot of places. That was one of the five best live matches I've seen anywhere. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, not only uh, what are some of your other favorite bouts you saw live in the Memphis territory, but where that ranked, where this Lawler Dundee match ranked uh, among your personal top five that you've seen anywhere. Uh, well, it, you and you know, and it's really, it's like you can't at that point when you're dealing with something at that level go, well, number one and number two. And I'm and yeah. like, you know, what gosh, what which was better, you know, Sergeant Pepper or you know, uh, fucking whatever the case. It's at that point, it's all art and it's subjective, but for enjoyment factor, Lawler Dundee, and that to me, that was the best one, Flare Steamboat, a classic midnight rock and roll, uh, of course, the Lawler Funk. Uh, March 81 match and and then and actually maybe a, a few stray flare matches could all be in the and and well and there was Tiger Mask and the Dynamite Kid but it's rarefied air up there right mm -hmm. um part of the thing to me was that Lawler and Dundee were perfect for each other because they both they had completely different wrestling styles completely different but they were both incredible workers Mentally, they got the wrestling business. Psychologically, they got the wrestling business. I'm not even talking about mentally how to tell a story in the ring. I'm just talking mentally. They got the wrestling business better than almost anybody else. So even though they're completely different wrestlers, their work was so good. And they could do things that complemented each other uh, just because uh, uh, one would take a great bump in some way so that, but the other one would figure out a way to give it to him. That Fez press they used to do where Lawler would get hooked up under Dundee's legs. And they'd be, you know, four feet in the air perpendicular to the mat and they'd go down. It's because the one guy could take the bump well and the other guy could give it well. It was just, they, they, they melded perfectly, but it was, it was also because it, it, there was so much truth to that rivalry. And it, it, in 77, there wasn't. 
because there wasn't that rivalry yet. That's when Lawler actually made Dundee. Well, Jerry Jarrett's booking of Law, the Lawler Dundee program made Dundee a singles top singles babyface. When before the the biggest he'd been on the roster was a tag team heel, but because Lawler was undisputably the king as a single by that point, first Peyton Dundee competitive with him. And then Peyton Dundee able to beat him, and they built it up so slowly that it wasn't some guy coming out of nowhere, but Dundee had to earn it. First, he had to beat Lawler Stooge. Then he had to not get beat by Lawler twice in the same match. Then it was a one-fall match, but it was it was more even. They brought him up, and then Lawler made Dundee in 77 in the ring, and it wasn't a rivalry then that was so real life that it could spill over. But six years later, Dundee's been a workaholic. Dundee's been uh, uh, constantly trying to learn booking from Jerry Jarrett and always, you know, trying to be in the, and finally does become the booker and is figured in the office and Lawler has switched baby face and they were always, it was always one and two and some people like Dundee, but Lawler was always the guy, right? Uh, and, and so there was the natural rap, but Dundee probably worked a lot harder when he was booker than Lawler did. Uh, so there was always the rivalry by 83, all the fans knew it and all of, cause I mean, even when, you know, when they were both baby faces, then they were partners, they wouldn't ride together. Right. Cause there was, there was that <laughs> tension and professional respect, but you know, so by, by then they all knew it and Dundee had now switched heel and it was a completely different, rev- it was a reversal. Now Dundee was the heel that was bitter because all these years he hadn't been able to knock Lawler off. And this time he was going to do it and he was going to stop at nothing. And it was plausible because they'd both been there for 10 fucking years. Right? So that 79 didn't work because it was a rehash of 77 where Lawler had just turned heel again. Business had been somewhat sketchy anyway that year. And Dundee, the babyface, and Lawler, the heel again, even though they threw Jimmy Hart in, it didn't have time to percolate well before Lawler broke his leg. So, you know, 83 was the big reprise of something that people remembered from six years before that had sold out to Coliseum all summer. Plus, too, I think uh, Dundee being a heel, he was finally able to cut loose, and we got to see a little bit more of his real personality. You know, to me, Dundee was just, it was always kind of a smart ass and a little bit arrogant and cocky. Yeah. And I think he just relished that opportunity to, to cut loose again. Uh, well, and, you know, and see, you being a young fella, you never got to see Barnes and Dundee live. No, I didn't. And, and actually, because Barnes was even more of an arrogant, obnoxious, you know, Australian than, than Dundee was. Barnes did a lot of the talking, and Dundee didn't really get the chance. But now Dundee had been around, and also he had never talked on TV in Australia because he, he worked underneath. But now he'd been around all these top promo guys that came through Memphis for years and years and doing the babyface promos, which was not really not his, you know, his demeanor. Except right. <laughs> finally, when he got to be, when he got to be enough of a babyface icon that he could be the little smartass Bill Dundee, you know that that he that actually is endearing when you know him personally. Um, you know he was he was doing good promos as a babyface, but when he when he finally turned back heel, he got a chance to really cut loose and and rip into people. But and he also got a chance to pull off some more of those heel bumps because. Once again, if you didn't get a chance to see Barnes and Dundee live, they were the first 
heel team that came into Tennessee territory that took big bumps. They were like a Stevens and Patterson style revelation when we, I mean, we had great heel teams in the South, but they were all built on being big and fearsome and mean and, and pounded on the, the underdog baby faces. Right. So you had Don and Al green. I mean, you know, my God, the Von, the Von, the Von Bronners, uh, the interns, interns yeah. you know, so then all of a sudden here come these two fucking cocky furners that, that talked funny from Aust- over in Australia and, but the bumps they took and the matches they had, and they had a deal from the time they came in and shot an angle with them. They had heat and they would drag the, the Southern tag title belts to the, to the ring. Instead of wearing them, they would drag them on the ground behind them because that was how little respect they had for these, you know, cheap championships here in, in the, in the States <laughs> mate. And they'd throw them in the ring. Before they got to the ring, they'd throw them in over the top ropes. They'd hit the ring first, then they'd get in and yell at everybody. Well, the, the baby faces, whether Eddie Marlin and Tojo or either Tojo and Jimmy Golden, they did a program with the fucking Fuller boys, but whatever. The, the baby faces would be so offended at whatever Barnes and Dundee had done, and Barnes and Dundee had so much heat that every week the baby faces would hit the ring hot and jumpstart it. And they'd fucking blow into Barnes and Dundee while they still had their fucking, you know, those old Japanese warm-up suit jackets on. And they'd goddamn boom, boom, boom. And they'd pick up the belts and they'd whale them with the belts. And then they'd shoot Barnes off toward one turnbuckle to turnbuckle. And he would go forward up, hit the top turnbuckle with his stomach, flip over forward and fucking go over the top rope and, and not stop rolling until he got the third or fourth, fourth row ringside. And then they'd shoot Dundee off and he'd do that fucking head first up and over goddamn thing. Read it a handstand on the, the apron before cartwheeling off into the floor in the front row and the place would blow. And from then on, it's just, it's action. Either the baby faces were bumping them <clears throat> or then when they took over to get the heat, they were doing not only a bunch of double team shit, but just it, it, as soon as the referee turned his back for a second, when a baby face fed in to complain, Dundee would run up the, the ropes like a ladder and come off the top with a flying double sledge to the middle of the ring and then roll out the other side and Barnes would take his place and, or whatever the fuck. It was always action going on. And then on the comebacks, they'd fly again. Baby Eddie Marlin would hit George Barn with that old running overhand forearm that the Southern baby face used to throw <laughs> and Barnes would take a backflip and land on his stomach and his face from the big forearm halfway across the ring. It was just so, so they were all, that's why they got over it because they just Stevens and Patterson, the thing over, they had these great fucking wild matches and bumps and blood and, and, and all that stuff. But it, that all made sense. Yeah. And, and- one thing I noticed in listening to the WHD if Barnes hadn't got if Barnes hadn't got homesick, they would have they were still the champions when he decided to leave and go home. Wow. Yeah, and and I know that Christine Jarrett had been planting the seeds in and Jerry's ear, saying, <laughs> you know, you need to turn him babyface. He's he's too good looking, and he would be the ultimate underdog. And and that's eventually what what ended up happening. But at the time when he was doing those promos with uh, with uh, uh, with Barnes, you know, I went back and listened to a lot of the WHBQ stuff, and it's interesting because there's such a contrast between the two. Uh, Barnes, as you said, is is almost like a Nick Bockwinkel delivery. Uh, very deliberate. Yeah, with uh, an Australian and, accent. Yeah, and then he, <laughs> and then he would pass it off to. And Dundee was the firecracker, and 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 the kind of the hothead. And Jared had told them, you know, just you know, really go after uh, go after the fans. Think you know, just really be personal. And some, it's <laughs> frankly, some of the most 
racist promos I've ever heard in, my life <laughs> in, in the beginning. And then I think they were told to uh, to calm it down a little bit because all the fans from the balcony were just just torpedoing them with bottles and batteries and yeah. every, everything else they could get well, their hands you know, on. That, that, that scar that Dundee still got across his chest was from one of those old-fashioned metal nail files the old women used to carry as woman in Louisville one night came out of her purse with it. Uh, do you think some of the, the person, the personal animosity or, or jealousy or rivalry between the two that was very real s- started because of the timing of Lawler's departure in February of 75 and the arrival, the Australians debuted the very next week and, you know, the territory, I think went down a little bit. They dipped a little bit into the five, 6,000 range a month, but a month later, the Australians are headlining and regularly drawing crowds of 10,000, uh, 11,000, who drew a couple of sellouts. I, Do you think that bothered Lawler a, a little bit? No. <laughs> no? I, well, actually, I, to be honest, I would never th- think that because I, I would I, – I, let's put it this way. It wouldn't be any animosity between him and Dundee for it. I, it, may, it might be if he was down in Georgia or wherever – he was at that point that Jerry had sent him and he hears they're drawing 10,000 people in Memphis. He's probably hot at Jerry, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, but honestly, you know, I think that Lawler always knew that they were going to bring him back to Memphis. I think I would have to think at that point. And also I would think Jerry Jarrett always knew he was going to bring him back to Memphis. And as soon as, as they brought Lawler back that summer against the stomper, it sold out, uh, you know, just the, from the first match. And so then he just he made the moves to bring him back in full time, and I guess they made up with their uh, issues. Mm-hmm. But the point is, I think more of the rivalry came between Lawler and Dundee to me from both of them were were top guys that wanted to be the top guy, and um, I you know it was almost like maybe like Jerry Jarrett's uh, warring sons trying to you know because Dundee was a more as I said a more faithful workaholic with office work and into that stuff whereas everybody knows Jerry could just rattle it off you know the four the TV format of you know an hour before the show oh, went yeah. on here. <laughs> but it was because I mean and part of it was because it, at the time those guys could be told including Lawler go out you know cold and do 15 minutes on live TV verbally or physically it wasn't as barbaric as it seems now where everybody has to pre-prepare all this shit we all had little prep time for live TV in those days but Dundee really put in the effort and wanted to learn booking and did learn booking and it was involved in the office but he could never just because Lawler had that unique talent and also a, a couple years head start and unique timing and just and especially being the guy in Memphis, he couldn't you know get that spot and I, th- I th- and they of course they're different people, and it's not that they were <clears throat> you know motherfucking each other behind their back uh, to all the fans and everything, but you could tell when 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 their separate cars stop after the matches and Lawler's at McDonald's getting the Big Mac and Dundee's <laughs> over getting the beer. And Lawler's listening to the fucking Neil Sadaka bubblegum shit. And Dundee's got the country music and, you know, and the cowboy hat. And it, you know, they were going to be rivals. Yeah. There was no way around it. And both of them were there. And, and nobody has in that 10 year period that was probably the biggest business that the Memphis Territory ever did. Jimmy Valiant uh, at, at one point got over one or both it could be said, and in certain places for periods of time, 
and uh, Dutch Mantel was up there once or twice, mm -hmm. but um, but for 10 years, they were the two guys of all that talent that came through. They were the two guys that were the biggest stars. So there was always going to be that way. But I don't think it was just because Barnes and Dundee drew better while Lawler was out of town. Well, I, I just wondered if the, maybe that was like the start of it all, you know, like a, like a little bit of that that personal uh, jealousy between the two. Because I'm sure in Dundee's mind, I think and I've heard him bring it up, you know, look, Lawler left and, and we and Yeah, we well, now from that and, side, and, and actually, I I can think he would probably say that, but at the same time, with what we know about Jerry, I'm wondering if he even knew what the fucking house was in Memphis <laughs> while he was gone or gave a shit, really. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, he's, I mean, I, and I mean that in a, with all love. No, a, no, absolutely. I know what you mean. Stress-free, <laughs> worry-free, don't give a fuck about anything person as relates to business. That's why he's, I guess, you know, still been able to tolerate it this long. But anyway. Yeah, I remember I, I went out did a promo and I like botched something in 95 or 96 and, and I, Lawler could tell I was upset. And he goes, hey, he goes, hey, Scott, come here for a second. He's like, I'm going to tell you what I told Dutch Mantel once back in 82 when he was out delivering a promo for one of our big bouts. You know, he stumbled over something and he felt like that ruined the whole thing. And I told him, Dutch, when I leave this door, I don't give <laughs> two shits about my promo or how I came across or any of that stuff. I just let it go, man. You hit the next one, and and uh, that that's as close as any kind of fatherly advice that Lawler but, ever but, gave. You know what? That that's easy for like fucking Lawrence Olivier to say after right. he steps off the stage, right, or whatever. Uh, and I actually remember that promo. I I don't know who had said what to Dutch or what Dutch was trying to say or what had rattled him or what happened, but it's the worst Dutch Mantel promo in the history of all promos. And it only was that one week. He was good before it. He was good after. But that week, and something happened, and it just it fried his his brain, and it he got vacuum lock or something. But yeah, uh, one, but, th one thing that's interesting about Lawler and Dundee, it really from the start. I mean, they they worked. I, I believe the first match between the two was December first of seventy five, and that was because they were thrust together as part of a uh, Southern title tournament. Where the, yeah, you know, yeah. but they were, I used to love the way they would uh, you know set it up where the Tennessee representative. You know, and yeah. then they would say that Bob Roop won the division in Florida and full and Ron Fuller won the uh, tournament in Georgia. Like all the southern states were competing just to get a slot into the uh, tournament. And then they came back on December 8th and worked again. And, and we we have those promos from WHBQ and the back and forth just immediately was was incredible. <laughs> It really was. It, it's amazing that Jarrett waited that long to really pull the trigger on a long term feud, but it probably paid off in the long run. Well, but see, see, that's the thing. And I remember also that tournament, they the people were so gr glad to see Lawler back that they brought Lawler and his manager, Sam Bass. They put Sam Bass back with him and brought them in as baby faces for a couple of weeks because the people were so glad to see him back. And then he turned in the midst of the tournament, if I remember my P's and Q's correctly. And was not Bob Armstrong was involved. Well, I think he injured Bob Armstrong to force the tournament, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yes, right. you are correct, sir. Um, and that, yeah, and that pretty much, you know, then they turned. But um, I can see why that he waited because at that time, remember, see, here's the thing. Dundee, once again, had been in the business so long in Australia, but he'd. He'd become he'd only gotten a main event spot when he and Barnes were pushed here and they drew huge houses. So Jarrett knew he had something and he saw the talent and the determination. But you can't just take a, a tag team heel and then suddenly make him a top singles babyface that quick and make him competitive in that environment. And that's why 
and, and also teach him how to be a baby face in, in Tennessee. Uh, mm. Cause he'd only mm. been here, you know, six months to a year. So that's why he put him in the tag teams. He was everybody. Every, he was tag team champion. Every time a baby face tag team, the next year, 76 was champion. It was usually with Dundee right? <laughs> just to get people the idea of seeing him in the main events and he's wearing yeah. belts and he's credible. Yeah, they, did, they then, did that with Steve Kern when they yeah. – yeah, yeah. And and by then – and remember in 77, the way they started the program was first Dundee had to last 15 minutes against Bad Bad Leroy Brown. That was uh, Lawler Stooge. And then, you know, so he does, and that means he wins, even though he didn't beat anybody. He just lasted because they're building him slowly. And then it was, well, you can't last with me, with Lawler, and then he did. And I'll beat you twice, but he didn't. And then Dund- it was they were four or five, six weeks in the program before Dundee ever actually beat him once. Yeah, and, and, the, and then Lawler turned around, gives him heat back, and here we go again. Yeah, they, and they split. I think they split him up one week, and during that week, Dundee beat uh, Plowboy Fraser. So yeah, uh, I think he I think he outlasted Leroy Brown uh, the first time, and then he actually pinned Brown. And then pin Fraser. So I mean, at that point, Jesus. I mean, Dundee is is completely over and and has had to be taken seriously. But even but Lawler still wouldn't give him the credit, you know, and said that you know <laughs> he, he could he could not only beat him but beat him twice in fifteen minutes. Oh, uh, my, the the best part about the program though was when finally when they got to when Mickey Poole was uh, uh, Lawler Stooge. Uh, he was just a kid from Memphis. And was hanging around, and Lawler made him his manager Stooge because of course Sam had had died and they put up Mickey pool's hair and shaved Mickey pool's head. And, and I mean, I think that one drew like eight or 9,000 people, right? Just to see Lawler Stooge get his head shaved. <laughs> but then the next week he comes out and there's Mickey with a fucking head of hair. Look like, you know, Eric Bischoff on his game show days. And Lawler said, I got a, a, a grandmother is of Indian descent and she gave me a little bottle of this hair restorer. And I put it on Mickey pool's head. Look, his hair looks better than it did before. And he's wearing this ridiculous wig. They kept that thing going for four months and drew the biggest houses the last three weeks of it. Yeah, I think I think uh, two. I think ten straight weeks of, of working on top, uh, peaking with uh, a sellout on August first of, of seventy seven with uh, Lawler winning the title and, and Dundee's Cadillac, uh, and he had risked his hair to to get that. And then they came back the next week. And, uh, and Lawler, uh, I think he defended against Orndorff, but lost to Dundee. I think, I think Dundee had put his, his hair on the line and it all kind yeah. of built to the, and then, and then around that time, uh, Elvis died, which sort of planted the seed, I think for, you know, I remember when Lawler w- w- finally announced his retirement after the, uh, the final match with Dundee. Yeah, shaved, finally. <laughs> when the, yeah. But when, when they shaved Bev Dundee, which had to be the most outrageous stipulation in the history of wrestling to that point. I would think. Would you agree that that? We're, oh, we're Lord, no, that's not the most ridiculous stipulation ever in the history of wrestling. That probably well, no, to, the, to that point, uh, where, where a guy's wife hey, was it there, there, They were wrestling alligators in the forties. Well, <laughs> no, but here's here's the thing. I say finally uh, announced his retirement because you know Elvis died in what late June. No, uh, I thought it was August. Was it, was it August? August? Okay, it was August. It was August. No, wait. I think he died in it. Well, anyway, no, he died in June, didn't he? See, we, see, we should, we should know. I should know this. Uh, you should know this. You're, well, <laughs> while you look it up on the interweb, I'm going to tell you what, regardless <laughs> of when he died, 
they had the idea because it, things were so hot. Lawler had got so hot, and they knew they had to, you know, they were not going to, Lawler and Dundee were not going to wrestle for the rest of their lives. They knew that. So they got to do something, and they said, well, here's a chance. Maybe we can have him retire you know, and go into singing and then, you know, draw a house with him being gone for a while when he comes back. But because the Lawler-Dundee program was going so well, that's when Jarrett decided to extend it. The last two weeks where they did the hair matches were supposed to have been after the blow-off. And uh, so they, they – they, because – he kept it going for a couple of weeks because he saw that there was still life in it, as as I recall him telling me. But anyway, so then by the time that Lawler then turned around and retired and business immediately went in the toilet, <laughs> he had to come back out of retirement after only like three weeks. So it yeah. wasn't even wasn't yeah. even a demo tape, much less than the <laughs> Well, and I wish, they, I wish I think it hurted a little bit. I wish they had said art, like he was going to concentrate on his artwork because the singing oh, thing. How plausible was that, really? It, uh, it fit the story, but art. You'd say, okay, yeah, this guy could be a big artist, but the singing, I think, you know. But but anyway, but that's that. It, it was the perfect blow off because at the time, every baby face that I can think of really with the exception of the big Fargo and Al Green hair match, which is what sold out to Coliseum for wrestling the first time in 1972. In the end, the baby face, the heel always got his head shaped and nobody was smart then. So I, a lot of the people probably went the first week thinking, which sold out, uh, I think it came pretty close thinking it Dundee versus Lawler hair versus hair. Yeah, Lawler's getting his hair shaved, and they wouldn't see that. Well, then when they didn't, they were fucking stunned that Dundee got his head shaved. But then the next week, when they hear Dundee's wife versus Lawler's hair, <laughs> okay, well, there's no way now. And that's why they and they were into school at that point. Yeah, yeah, they were in back to school because they had kept the thing going because they were drawing so well. And I, that may be the only time they ever did a fucking ten thousand person plus house in Memphis is the first week of September or whatever. Yeah, yeah, two and, two consecutive uh, ten thousand uh, people in Coliseum, <laughs> which is again, you're right because it's like clockwork. Uh, usually, that but the first car in September, there's that there, there's that huge dip. We well, we've talked about it on my show uh, on the experience that uh, when going over Smoky Mountain that that September would you know. But anyway, um, and I remember. Uh, uh, Lawler and Guy Coffee and several people telling me that that old barber, what was his name? Yeah. Eight, eight, eight. <laughs> yeah. Lance, Lance told me that story. He was scared to death to get in that ring and cut that woman's hair. And finally, I think Dundee himself had to tell, no, cut her fucking hair. See these fucking people? They'll never let us out of here alive. Because now <laughs> by then, the people are like, okay, if they're going to cut this woman's hair, we're going to watch this, right? <laughs> and it was just, it was, it was insane. So, you know, it, but, but you, you, you know what they got out of that, don't you? Oh, uh, well, I know, I know that didn't, didn't, didn't he get five grand and she got, or he got 2,500. She got five grand, which I guess would be, well, well, I don't know how they chose to split it up amongst the, <laughs> amongst the couple, but yes, basically they got like seven grand or whatever the fuck yeah. it was in 1977. Uh, which is equivalent somewhere almost like 30 grand today to that was the down payment on their first house. He just moved to the, <laughs> to the United States in January of 1975. And by the summer of 77, he's not only on top in Memphis, which at that point, that kind of business they were doing, they were making it. He was had to be making a couple grand a week on payoffs, which would be five or six grand you know today a, a main event in louisville and evansville and and even before lexington memphis and nashville and 
etc. And then to get that bonus payoff, that was the down payment on their first house there. So two years later, he's, you know, I don't even know if he was a citizen yet. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I think he like he used to like to joke that the, the first haircut uh, was the down payment on the house and the, the second one helped furnish it. Well, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and some of the furniture. Yeah. Well, it, once again, $7,500 used to go further than it does these days. Uh, but so that was, you know, that was a hell of a deal of people are, and I think, and, and, and part of it was a very expensive wig too. That was part of the, the comp uh, deal. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think Lance said he goes. He goes, man. He goes. He goes. I was. I was fearing for our life, and we were just like telling the guy. I think the guy, the barber, misunderstood. Like when all the people rushed around ringside, it wasn't that, that they were about to riot because she was going to get her hair cut. They just wanted to get up close so they could yeah, see. They it. wanted to see. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, well, you know, we ought to get onto the topic because fast forward to to 1983 when the actual match that we're supposed to be talking about took place. But now that we have the history, um. But that was, I think, the reason why it worked so well. Number one was because the roles were reversed this time. And Dundee was a heel at this point, And it was an entirely tellable story that he was, you know, he'd finally had enough of always coming in, you know, second to the king. And by God, this was going to be it. And secondly, they didn't do a program this time. Because at that point, it was like Bobo and the Sheik or the Rock and Roll in the Midnight. You know, after you've seen it so many times, it wouldn't draw every week to do again for three months. But the big match would always draw. And they didn't have a lot of notice because it was, you know, Ole and Jarrett came up with the idea to, you know, to do what they did, which was Jerry's way of of separating uh, do you think in, in, a, in, a, in a way, because the program was on the fast track because of Jarrett and, and Oli's plan, uh, do you think we were robbed of, of a summer uh, of 77 all over again? And, and would it have worked long term because of the role reversals with Dundee playing uh, the arrogant heel and Lawler being the top baby face and, and doing the blow off? And all, do you think they could have pulled that off again with them working week after week and then leading it to the Loser Leave Town finale? Or do you think it was just perfect as is where we only got two weeks of Lawler versus Dundee? Well, I mean, they could have pulled it off and they could have had a program and it probably would have done uh, as good a business as anything else they were going to do. But it wouldn't have it wouldn't have had the longevity or the sellout numbers of the first one, I don't think, just because it was, you know, it was fresh. Yeah, in, in 77 and the, and it was an iconic match, but did they want to see it 12 more times in a row? I'm, you know, so the point is, I, I think it, it, it was also, it was memorable. It was one memorable week where they cleaned up and say, here's where I was going to tell you earlier, <clears throat> your, your finances are off because Jared promotions took in more money than that, that week, because I was in late. And by the way, my pay for that week, as the underneath manager, and I was actually in, in uh, the semifinal match because it was me and Jimmy Hart and Duke Myers and Bobby Eaton against the Fabs, four against two in a handicap match. It was the semifinal in Memphis, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. So I got, I got 300 bucks for that just being – and I'm fixed to leave the territory. I'm the, I'm the stooge second-in-command manager that's fixed to leave the territory. I got 300 bucks for that. Um, and I made like $1,000 in that period of the lose-or-leave matches, but – which was one of my better weeks in, in the business at that point, just being underneath. But I was in Lexington. And then uh, uh, it, it, on the Saturday night when they did the Nashville match, I was, and I you know should have my book here in front of me, and I don't. But let, I was in the Osceola, Arkansas end of the world. Ah. Right? There was a spot show 
Saturday night as well as Nashville. So they did they did Lexington on Thursday and did I believe forty thousand dollars, forty two, whatever it was. Um, then Friday night they had two spot shows in two different towns. Saturday morning they did TV from Channel Five in Memphis. Saturday night they ran Nashville and another town, and the other town did two or three thousand dollars. You know, a couple hundred people with a buttermilk run. Nashville did a, a sellout, and I, I wasn't there, so I don't have the exact gate, but a sellout in Nashville because we had done them a few times that year it was around thirteen grand, fourteen grand. Um, and then on Sunday, I believe that week, were we off or were we in Jackson? Uh, this is your podcast. I, I thought you, I thought, I thought you guys were off, but I'm not sure about, I'm not sure about that. Well, I don't, I, once again, but, and then Monday they go to the Coliseum and sell out 11,000 plus $46,000 was the gate. Uh, then in Tuesday in Louisville, I was in water Valley, Mississippi or somewhere for buddy fucking Wayne. So oh, no, what? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. So, I mean, once again, it was another three or $4,000 spot show. That was money coming in for, for the company. But meanwhile, Louisville does – if they sold out the, the wrestling configuration at that point, which I heard that they did, it was around 6,000 people, give or take. And the tickets back then were six, five, and four. And I know in the gardens, four was general admission, and that was two-thirds of the tickets. And then the five was – uh, the reserved, and there was only about, you know, seven or 800 ringside. So the point is that sellout would have been somewhere around close to 30 grand. And then, uh, uh, Wednesday, I don't remember where I was and I did, they do it in Evansville. They sure. Well, they- see, see I, I wasn't sure. And I've never, I've never seen an ad for it, but I'm almost positive. Uh, and again, yeah, if it were anything other than a fan report, because I, I know that those were legit because I used to write it. Those were my, my first bylines in journalism and the after mags, the little, uh, reports that I would send in from the matches. And I'm almost positive. I saw one for Evansville. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Cause that was the TV show. They wouldn't yeah. have had another TV show. Yeah. So at any rate, that was amazing money. And there was another show on Wednesday night. They were running that, that summer. That's one of the reasons why Jared had to get rid of some of those guys. They were running two shows every night because they had too many wrestlers. Cause Lawler had promised everybody a spot when he was going to take over. <laughs> and then he, he couldn't get rid of enough guys. So he had 40 guys that one, one week, the opening match in, at the Coliseum was a 10 man tag team match. And there was yeah, eight I've, matches. I, I, I've never, I've never seen a card. I think with two, two, I think there were two eight man tags. (laughs) Yeah. Jerry, Jerry was a polite booker. Jerry Lawler was a polite booker because he would never fire you. He just, he just slowly ignore you out (laughs) until until you're just like, I'm lost. Nobody even knows I'm here. I can't make any money. Um, but anyway, so they, they, they ran in the, in the space of a week, they ran like 10 shows plus to plus a TV grossed. Uh, well over six figures, which would be, you know, close three, 400 grand for one week in today's money. Um, you know, everybody made a fortune and then, and then we went off to conquer the world in Georgia. And, and then the only problem is the, then they had to figure out a way when Georgia failed in eight weeks, they had to figure out a way. We all just kind of filtered back in, but poor Dundee had lost that loser leave town match. So he could, he was working the Memphis spot shows. He just couldn't work any town. He'd actually lost a right. loser leave town <laughs> match in until they figured out a way for the fans to demand that they bring him back. 
Well, and and they did a pretty creative job with that because they had they had where Jimmy Hart engineer he he wrote Stanley Blackburn <laughs> and Blackburn and Lance read the official letter and the whole thing uh, saying that Lawler hadn't defended the title in thirty days, which Lawler blamed on Hart because he had gotten him into all these tag team feuds and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the condition was it had to be a former Southern heavyweight champion uh, or all 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 the uh, all the guys like it would be Lawler and then uh, three other former Southern Heavyweight champion. So it was Dutch, Condry, and then Hart was able to find that loophole and bring Dundee back in. That yeah. was, it was so, somewhat plausible. And then they turned him, I, I, again, I kind of wonder, it's like, gosh, I wonder if they should have just left him as, as, a, as a heel uh, because they immediately switched him back after he loses to, uh, to well, Lawler in no, the finals. See, then here's the rib. When he was a fucking heel, he, he'd give up most of his fucking gimmick money. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He takes at that level that he was at. He was, we were selling thousands of pictures a week of Bill Dundee. If at that level, he probably cut his, his payoffs in half or his, his salary in half by being a heel. You know, go, uh, you know, going back to, to the 77 feud. And, and we talked about, uh, briefly that, you know, they did meet in 75. I, one of the best examples I've heard of how, just how, you know, I think, I think, uh, somebody at the Charlotte Fan Fest brought up to you about talking about Vince Russo and the fact how he doesn't understand the wrestling business. And before the guy could even finish, you cut him off. He goes, "You know how to, you know how to, you know how to, to draw money in the in the fucking wrestling business. This is what you do. You put two guys on a trajectory, but keep them apart, and they're both winning and winning and winning. And then finally, it looks like they're going to come together, and the crowd and the people are starting to realize, holy shit, they're about to they're about to finally fight." Um, and I think that's one reason why maybe that 77 feud clicked so well, because they had the initial bouts and then they took a year away from it before they were matched up again. And in 83, uh, the catalyst wasn't necessarily even Lawler for the Hilton. It was Dundee getting jealous over the, the arrival of the Fabs, uh, Terry Taylor, Steve-O. And they were, again, kept separate for, for three or four months before they finally had uh, the uh, the feud ignite again, which I, which I think well, was... Well, yeah, was, because... The- <laughs> If, if once again, you've got to get a guy over in that environment. So when Dundee switch, he, if he'd have, if he'd have switched heel on Lawler, he'd have had to work directly with Lawler, and he was not going to come out the winner of that program. And it would have drawn, but it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have drawn for you know fucking twenty thousand people in two weeks or whatever. Because what they did was Dundee just got basically jealous and grumpy and everything. And beat a bunch of people <laughs> and, and won the Southern title and had the, and bull whipped Dutch Mantel on the scaffold with his own bull whip and got all that heat and everything. And then, okay, here comes Lawler. Cause that's where you always ended up. Uh, you know, you could, there was no higher authority. And, and so, you know, it was, that's how they got Dundee over as, as not only as his new attitude, but also, that, you know, that he was still an ass kicker and could beat everybody and was still the top guy, except for the top guy. Yeah. Was the last one he got to. Yeah. And, and the seeds were, were planted. It was a very subtle moment on the Christmas show that they taped it. I believe it was at Jerry Jarrett's mansion. <laughs> and it was like Waller. Lawler Dutch and Terry Taylor just sitting around a Christmas tree and uh, Taylor's got the Southern heavyweight title. And Dundee just makes a little comment like, yeah, congratulations on winning that belt there, mate. I'm coming after it in the new year. And and just right there, it was just it was. There was several seeds planted because that's when Lawler's sitting there. He's probably figuring, okay, I was supposed to be the co-owner of this company, and <laughs> I was living yeah. in eighteen thousand square foot house. Uh, 
<laughs> but anyway, well, it lets as as far as the match went. Uh, one of the big things that that you mentioned and that I got a kick out of was that all the guys on the card came out the eighty three round, uh, the eighty three loser leave match. All the guys on the card came out to watch it because it was the most important match in 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 Memphis history, as they said at that point, and. It made perfect sense that everybody would want to see it, would want to know it, would want to be involved if it was that important. And also, even seeing the top guys sitting there at you know waiting to see what happened, just got not only the guys in the match but the whole concept of the match over so much stronger. Yeah. And they, what they they told us it because and here's the thing: I always stayed anyway. Watched the main events in Memphis in the territory. The rule was because guys were in the car so much, and if if you were done and everybody you were riding with were done, you could go. It wasn't like where Bill Watts insisted everybody stay to the end. <clears throat> and of course, also Watts's territory had more riots than Memphis did, so a lot of times the heels would stay to help the other heels get back to the locker room. But I would always stay and watch the main events in Memphis because it was always Lawler against a big star or something good, and I was you know. I was following Dutch Mantel's advice he hadn't even given me, but that he gave Steve Austin. Hey, sit there in the corner, watch all the matches, learn how to do this shit. Um, so I was going to be there anyway, but I remember a few of the other guys are like, oh, God, now we're going to be back to Nashville and everything. But, but they, they just came to us and said, yeah, it's, it's the most important match in Memphis history. So all of y'all are going to watch it. Cheer for your fucking favorite. That was our pre-match instructions. And obviously that's all you needed if you knew what the fuck you were doing. And they put up a, a, a separate front row. Cause I'd ask this, we're not going to have to sit in the fans, right? Cause I'm afraid somebody's going to blackjack me. And they're like, no, we're gonna. <laughs> they had the rope, but then they put another front row inside near ringside. And then we sat in that. And yeah, uh, I always wondered how the heels felt being that close. Cause yeah, no, well they had the, the cops were watching on, you know, the end of either row and we were across the rope and everything. Cause that's the same that's the exact same place that we were sitting was where this guy clocked Jimmy Hart when, when, uh, uh, Duke Myers was carrying me out after Lawler had beat us up one night and Duke threw me over his shoulder. Like he was going to give me one of those shoulder break, Bob Roop shoulder breakers. Right. So his head was in front of me, but old pork shop cash just bent over and picked Jimmy up like an old woman. And his head, Jimmy's head was hanging over pork shops back. And this fucking fan come up and just clocked <laughs> Jimmy right in the fucking head. Jesus. He's supposed to be unconscious. And Jimmy hopped off a fucking pork shop shoulder and went after that. I've got the video. I've got the tape. He's going, he's a you motherfucker. You, you and pork shops try to hold him back. And here comes the cops. And it instantly, Jimmy was unconscious, got punched in the face and was revived and in action within seconds. But I digress. That's where we were sitting. And they just told us, they said, don't interfere. Nobody's going to interfere in the match, but, you know, act out and, and share your favorites. And and then we got in the ring afterwards and consoled Dundee, but seeing it just up close and because I never managed either one of those guys. So I, that's the only time I got to watch them, they, you know, in the modern era after I'd gotten the business. I'd seen the original matches as a ringside photographer, but then I'd had to stay away. So I, I was back up where you could hear, you could hear Dundee's punches landing. You oh, know? <laughs> they, they, they are so snug. Those punches. And, and, the, and, the, the, you know, and the, the, the grunts and the oofs, cause they were beating the piss out of each and they expected that it wasn't the, the there was little margin of error when you were working that snug, but that nobody was going to have surgery over anything, but they were punching each other in the face and, and, and 
taking those fucking bumps hard. Lawler was hitting the concrete hard, but Dundee would took, brought out one of his Barnes and Dundee bumps. When he did that deal where he ran and tried to give the foot in the corner and Lawler yeah. moves, foot goes over the top rope and he goes forwards over the post. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that I'd never seen him take that bump before. And, and that, and bear in mind that he was going to turn 40 either that the next year. Dundee at that point, but they went that long at that pace. He was in such condition. Um, and you know, and, and he just, he pulled out all of his old shit that he, you know, that he used to do and everything. And, and, and plus I loved the, 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 the running shoulder blocks they would do anyway. They'd been doing those for years where, you know, fucking, uh, Lawler take that fucking bump over Dundee's shoulder like mm-hmm. that. But anyway, which, which, that was, which led beautifully into the finish, to the finish. Yeah. Uh, which, but, which, which I think is just, it's, it's one of the, it has to be the perfect finish to, to a match. Cause on the third try, Lawler catches him with an uppercut, kicks him right in the gut and just, you know, I love Lawler's power driver. He gets air under it. <laughs> perfectly, <laughs> just, and, just, and, 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 uh, I believe Lance Russell exclaimed, he crammed him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and you can see the, I think at one point you can see like the heels, like, like going, Oh no, like kind of like, like you just went in a car accident. And, and, you know, and that's the kind of thing that the, they already had the reputation that they had done, had such great matches. Then the tapes, what existed had been replayed periodically over the years. And they'd done such a great job with the TV show, an hour and a half TV show to talk about one match on Monday night in Memphis and a one hour TV show in all the other towns pre-taped with guys sitting, talking about the match they're going to have and playing tapes of matches they used to have and tapes of promoters hoping that they'll come to their company when, when they have to leave Louisville or wherever the case. Um, that match drew sold. Well, we, we figured it up here a second ago, in, but in terms of number of tickets, uh, between 25, uh, well, 11,000 in Memphis, 6,000 in Louisville, 17, six, what was it? Seven in, in Lexington, 24 sold. 2000 in Nashville, 26, 27,000 tickets in one week from a company in, in two states while they were running other shows. And what would they have done in, in Evansville typically? They did, I bet they did the same goddamn thing. Yeah. Oh, well, and I thought you meant match wise. Um, in Evansville, um, the biggest house I ever saw in Evansville was $11,000. That was, as I said, the match between Lawler and Dream Machine, that six, five, and $4 tickets. That building, no way should there have been 2,000 people in it, and there was probably every bit of that. They were standing in the bathroom. They were in the front lobby trying to peek through the doors. Yeah. If they did that, a couple of thousand people could have, you know, could have jammed in there, but, you know, 1,500 minimum. If they, you know, so once again, you know, it's, it's just, it's incredible the amount of tickets that they could sell in a week to those big matches. Were, were you there for the, uh, for the Mid-South Coliseum belt for Lawler's return? Uh, no, no, I wasn't. Okay. I was, I been. Man, man, that, that, that was absolutely the most packed uh, yeah. I've ever seen the Coliseum. I mean, you know, we, we, we barely got tickets because, you know, Memphis was such a walk up town. And I remember my uncle and I pulled up and we were like, Oh, bro. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was touch and go whether or it not we was, were going to get in. It was a week between Christmas and new years. And, and I was going to see the match the next week twice. And I was like, well, all right. And, and in Lexington too. And then, you know, and then I missed the giant sellout and fucking introduction to the dream machine and everything. So, you know, and, and it's funny, I, I'm sure the, I'm sure the boys probably got into it watching Lawler and Dundee in this 83 series, but I always kind of wondered what, what maybe like the fabs thought, 
you know, the fourth time <laughs> and, and, and Louisville kind of going, oh, geez, do we have to go back? Well, no, because Stan and Steve, they were probably glad to be that close to the front row where they and they could see the girls better. They could scout talent. Right? Yes. And then they'd be like, OK, in the alley, uh, about 15 minutes after the match is over. OK. <laughs> but yeah, but but being being up up close and, and seeing those guys do that. And it was just it's a, and you can tell they're calling almost nothing. Or, or, you know, and Lawler has that way of projecting his voice in your head where you never see his expression change from what it's supposed to be or his lips move, but you just hear his voice in your head when he's telling you to do shit. But they, they were very little, but they just reacted off of each other. And then they, they knew by stuff they do when they were going into a, maybe a spot or two that they knew they were going to do because they had a repertoire. And they, but, and once again, everything was stiff. People bought everything. You could tell the people, even in the cheap seats, got it instantly and were living and dying on the stuff. And it was yeah, just, and, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they did the same deal where, with Lawler getting uh color off the, off the bump spot where he gets knocked off the apron and onto the ringside yeah. table. And, and that, that really, like, probably makes, not in Evansville. <laughs> but that, Evansville but that, that, is not, I, you can count on, I think Evansville, Lawler, Bledwin, Kamala worked with him in Evansville. I think. Okay. Maybe once, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, the, but I do, I do have a fond memory of that though, because a lot of times I, I remember, I remember racing home from that baseball game and just, you know, just robbed of, of seeing that, that great main event. Cause that's a card my uncle definitely would have taken me to cause school was out. And, and my father, you know, was lieutenant with the fire department. So I, I got as soon as I called him, I'd missed Jack Eaton's news report. So I had no idea. There was no Internet. And so I called my dad. And I, was, I was like, I said, what happened? And my dad and I was like, the king won. And I said, all right. And I goes, you know how he did it? And I said, no. And he goes, Paul Driver. And I went, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, and that and that's that's something also that we're missing in today's world when when you had to miss the matches, as long as you watched the local news. So on the sports segment, they would tell you who won the main event at the Coliseum. We're missing that in today's world. Oh, man, Jim, I, I have I, my dad used to complain because there were all these rubber bands in the driveway, you know, uh, and I did say rubber bands, not rubbers, uh, rubber yeah. bands in the driveway from because I would be there. on Cause, Tuesday morning. Because your if sister I, was already in college yeah. by that point. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, <laughs> when. Uh, when that when that newspaper guy with, with the commercial appeal would hit would throw that paper at, at you know around six a.m. I was there waiting if I didn't know the result of a big match pretty much pretty much every Tuesday morning in my childhood uh, just because I had to know and and on Friday we also got the press seminar which was the evening paper and they would have Monday's card on Friday afternoon. Oh, I know because no, here is how when I first got into business, I was usually booked in the Memphis area town on Friday night, and I would. My cousin lived there, and so I could stay there with him in, in Memphis out in Germantown and didn't have to get a hotel room. But when I'd come in from Tupelo, usually, or wherever I was on Friday night, I would stop by the Shoney's out there on uh, Summer and Sycamore View. that you, They used to have a breakfast bar, so I got all you can eat for like $3 or whatever. And I would go to the little shopping center right on the way there and pick up the, the press scimitar because that way I didn't have to wait to get to TV the following morning to see what I was doing in Memphis on Monday night. They had the card there, but now a lot of times, if you notice the Friday night, Saturday morning paper card was false booked because they would then shoot an angle on TV and change the main event. 
But generally, if you weren't in the main event and I didn't have to worry about those things at that point in time, then the rest of the card was, you know, what it was going to be. And, and, uh, and that way I'd know what the fuck I was doing on Monday night before I got the TV. That's how little notice that the average guys on the card had in those days that a lot of times we found out what the match was. when We got the show. Yeah. Especially, especially when uh, you, which you alluded to earlier, especially if Lawler had the book. Yeah, well, even, even that, there was no reason to tell, you know, the, your booking sheet in Memphis consisted of a piece of paper. It was like a four by six notepad piece of paper that that had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and a line and the town written in. That was the complete information of what you got <laughs> and you showed up at the building. Yeah, you know, I I I eventually made that that bus that booking sheet myself, which was uh, which was, and I actually I would I would keep those. I would ask Mister Coffee, it's like, hey, can I? You have an extra one? Can I keep this? <laughs> and he would look at me like, why? <laughs> I was like, you don't understand, man. This is a dream. He's like, I whatever. But uh, well, so you easily one of your one of your top five matches of all time, the 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 Memphis uh, Mid South Coliseum bout on June 6, nineteen eighty three. And, you know, once again, and people will watch it now and they go, oh, Jesus Christ, you know, he's impressed by something like this or that or the other thing. But I judge matches on how they get over. It's 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 easier <clears throat> to judge a match when you see it live because you're in the atmosphere. But some matches are so get great that they 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 transfer to video. Well, you can still tell. Um, and but I like matches that just start to finish there's what i call uh, no buzz killers there's nothing to take me out of it there's no obvious fall apart of cooperation spot or whatever the fuck yes lawler and dundee everybody would make uh, what not even mistakes but would have missteps or miscues do it but they made it look like part of the match part of the struggle and covered it yeah they, they checked all the boxes it was a great it was a great angle it was a great reasoning behind the match. It was great promotion and buildup of the match. It was great execution all the way through on both guys' parts. They were masters working with each other. You didn't see the biggest, most dangerous bump you ever saw in your life, but you also didn't see any embarrassing bullshit. You saw great wrestling all the way through from the beginning to the end, and it drew huge money, and it got over with the people and made them happy at the end that they had seen it. Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's one of those matches. It's yeah. – uh, you don't do that all the time. I mean, you know, and sometimes there's guys have great matches in a fucking tool shed and it didn't qualify as one of the greatest matches I've ever seen because it was a great match, but it was in a fucking tool shed. Yeah. 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 If you, in a if big you, arena yeah. with a lot of people, everything was there. Yeah. And, and I, I, that's what I've tried to explain to people, the atmosphere and, and just the, the bubbling over when Lawler would finally pull that strap and the crowd oh, was yeah. on would be with him with every punch with, the, you know, we're like, boom, boom. And, uh, just, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure that Hogan got maybe a similar reaction, but I don't know, man, the, the connection, I think that, that Memphis kids had with Lawler being their hometown guy was, was, uh, was very well, special, but, but also, and I mean, JYD got, uh, great reactions on his comebacks and dusty got great reactions on his comeback. All the baby faces in there, especially in their home territories, in their heydays, got tremendous reactions on their comebacks because usually most of them and Lawler fits this category. were not only masters of psychology, but of timing and of pantomime and of body language. 
and they built it right, and then they blew it off right, and they led the people. The people were making all that noise because these guys were so over with them, but they, they got the peak of the noise because they showed what they, right at the right point. And if you – Lawler's timing was when he dropped the strap, but he would stand there looking for just a second to let it register, and then when he heard the initial whoof from the crowd, he's dropped the strap – then he'd start into the fucking punches. Boom, 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 boom. And you'd have a flurry of action to keep people excited. And the heels are bumping, 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 bumping. And yes. And then there's the fire up moment where they've taken all their bumps. And then he drops down on the guy and he starts giving him the fucking rapid punches. And now they're, yeah, again. And it's up and it's down and it's up and it's down. And ah. Yeah. Play, playing it's, the audience like a piano. It's like it's like the conductors and the, and all the great. Baby faces would do the same thing, and it, it's a lost art because people don't care that much about the baby face anymore. Because did we mention now everybody's smart? It's all bullshit. Well, but well, when they actually cared, you know, it was it was an art. There was there was also that that lead up too, right before Lawler would pull it, where the crowd was was stomping. You know, they would stomp the floor as if to you know to root him on to to give him the the power to recuperate to where he could get to the point where he could pull the strap. And often, you know, it would be like the crowd, crowd would be stomping. You think it's going to happen, and then the 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 heel cuts him off, <laughs> and then it's back down again, and then it yeah. has to bubble back up. And so. then, well, you you know, you'd see a lot of times, especially in Lawler and and Dutch matches. I remember this one spot in particular where they're at a 11,000 seat building and Dutch has a standing chin lock on Lawler. Lawler's on his knees in front of him and he's, he's going out and he's going out and he's going out. And then all of a sudden his left arm shoots out. It's got tension in it and the people popped because they weren't, they, they were in a chin lock, but the people were so intent on paying attention to see what was going on that when they caught Lawler's body language that he wasn't done yet, you audibly hear the blow on, on fucking tape. And it, because they were invested in the match rather than in the performance, but I digress. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw the same thing with, uh, with Bachwinkle. He kept working the arm on Lawler and, uh, just it kept going back to it. Every time Lawler would come out of it, Bachwinkle right back to it and just beautifully just built the comeback. Um, and one thing too, I think I would be remiss. Uh, it, the, uh, you know, watching the bout there, it, it is available in its entirety. Um, but the, the video package they put together, which I think is just a perfect example of how innovative Memphis was and kind of ahead of the game. Cause that thing still holds up today. Oh God. Well, you know, I, what did I steal that for? I stole that for, I think it was Buddy Landell and Shawn Michaels at the Super Bowl of Wrestling in Smoky Mountain with the, the same Rocky theme music oh, yeah, and the concept yeah. of the thing, you know, because it was the perfect big match promo. And that is on YouTube. It, it's like three minutes long or whatever, but uh, it was a perfect big match, you know, fucking music video that summarized the back and forth of the whole match. Yeah, just just beautifully edited uh, and really, really helped tell the story. Uh, just a complete package there. But uh, all right. Well, hey, Jim, uh, always a pleasure talking to you, uh, other than when we're debating whether or not Mil Mascaris actually. Which new evidence has come to light. Which yeah, we'll, we'll, well, <laughs> uh, you know, you know why? Because so far it's been in your ass is why there's no light on it. <laughs> hey, will you quit focusing on my ass, please? Oh, I, uh, I check for this. <laughs> It's in the mail, kid. For heaven's sake, I thought I was going to get dinner too, but that that <laughs> out. All right, but no, but I can't believe it's been thirty-five years. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I called Dundee. I, I spoke to Dundee recently. Dundee, Saturdays ago. 
I, 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 I spoke with Dundee recently. Did he look better than four of the other guys in it? <laughs> I spoke with Dundee recently, and he was like, I, I, he, goes, he goes, he goes, Scott Bowden. He goes, oh, what the fuck do you want? <laughs> and I, I said, well, I'm in L.A. traffic. I got nothing to do, so I thought I'd call you. And he got really tickled at that. And I said, actually, I said, well, I want to have you on soon because we, you know, it's the 35th anniversary of the, the Big Loser Leave Town match. And he's like, holy shit, is it? <laughs> So, yeah, a lot of the boys, they don't sit around thinking about their anniversary or stuff like that. But uh, when you're a fan of it, and you grow up with it. You always go, hey, it's the 20. You know, I think I've celebrated the anniversary of that match every year, uh, you know, whether it was the 27th or the 29th or the 30th or the 30th. Say, let me let me ask when uh, when was the date of the last match you participated in? I'd like to start celebrating that. <laughs> I think a lot of people would. <laughs> it should be big on you know on most people's calendar, but well, at any rate, I think the house jumped. I think it was a it was after a Randy Hales angle that we did on TV, so the house jumped from uh, twelve hundred to about thirteen hundred. Did they tell the people it was your last match as well? They came out. And most of the, most of it was pe- people from uh, Jonesboro, just because I just raked them. I raked, I raked the entire community over the coals. <laughs> you know, I often wonder sometimes if if uh, if in Smoky Mountain Wrestling I had promoted, hey. I'm fixed to get rid of Tim Horner. If, if, if you people will just come just to the matches this, this Friday night in Knoxville, if, if we draw a big crowd, I'll get rid of Tim Horner for you. I'm, I'm wondering if that would have drawn somehow. Hey, do you remember me calling you? And, no, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> well, what the, no. <laughs> well, the, the rock, I was, I'd been managing the rock and roll. They were working heel in, in Memphis and, and I was wrapping up my first run and it was like, Oh, you ought to, you ought to call Cornette. Cause he's, cause you, I guess you were working babyface, and I left you this, this, uh, this long message and you never heard from you. <laughs> well, kid, uh, no, and, and actually, uh, I, with all due respect, um, you probably were not in my plans because I was not going to bring in another, another manager when I was probably going to switch back healer shortly anyway. So, you know. I don't want to say I that it's a disrespect of your talent or anything. I just didn't, didn't have a long-term <laughs> opening. Also, right. I'd never heard of who the fuck you were. <laughs> <laughs> One part of it, probably. Like, who the hell is this clown? <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right, Jim. Hey, thanks for joining us and uh, shedding slide on what made this match uh, and feud really, uh, gosh, one of the best feuds of all time. Where, where would you say this ranks as sort of the best feuds in wrestling? Go. Oh, you know, once again, it, I mean, it's iconic and it depends on where you grew up. And it depends on when you grew up, but, uh, in, in Tennessee, it would be one of the three or four great rivalries that people remember along with, you know, Fargo and Al Green and, and gosh, I, and Lawler and anybody else, Lawler and Fargo. Um, it, but you know, it, it was quality wise was every bit as good and better as, as some of the things in, in the other territories, but people who saw those firsthand would have fonder memories of those, but it, it was by all the metrics, it was great talent, giving great performances, drawing great crowds and great gates, and lasting with a, over a period of time, and with leaving great long-term memories with the fans. So it 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 clicks everything. Yeah, and I just want to say really quickly, even after '83, you know, we we like to think that maybe it peaked in '83, but uh, gosh, in '85 uh, they drew another ten thousand. Yeah. So- 
for the loser leave town finale. And then in 86 now, and I was at both of these because by this time I had my driver's license. So I was like, I'm not missing <laughs> another one of these damn loser leave town matches for anything. Uh, and then they came back in 86. And even though the, the houses had been down uh, a little bit to that point, but were sparked by Lawler's return, which was really the last great Memphis angle where they attacked Jeff Jarrett and that brought out Jerry Jarrett. And they, let, uh, they had two, uh, I think almost two, they had one sellout at the Coliseum and then another near sellout. Um, and then uh, it, I, th- I think it was almost to the day it was, a, it was in June of 86, another 10,000 people packing the Coliseum for a tremendous bout that went about 30 minutes between the two. So they even kept going after 83. It's just, oh, it's yeah. And, well, and I mean, you know, Burt Prentice has been running Jackson, Tennessee uh, over the past few years and, and promoted Lawler and Dundee in 2000. When was the Lawler funk match? It was 2016. And that 40 years after their their first go rounds and they still drew uh 12 1500 people in jackson at the coliseum there which outdrew jerry lawler against terry funk and and a bunch of uh, rock and roll express against people and a bunch of other big names it's still the the classic wrestling memory of the modern generation in in the tennessee territory so they can still draw better than than a lot of people Probably, probably going to be fighting at the gates of hell. Uh, I think they got it in three years. Just to say, they got another decade. They got it two and a half <laughs> years now. They got it two two years now. They got to do another one. Just say they got one more decade out of it: seventies, eighties, nineties, thousands, teens, and twenties. That'd be six decades. They'd beat Bobo Brazil and the Sheik. There you go. <laughs> All right, wrap this thing up, kid. All right, Jim. Well, thanks for stopping by, and uh, we'll have you we'll have you on again real soon. Well, thank you, thank you for the tease. I'll be waiting with bated breath. If you wonder what the smell is, it's my breath being baited. There we go. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. James E. Cornette, our special guest today here on the KFR podcast. We'll be right back. I can't believe they're still standing, much less alive. And Dundee split his legs out from under him. Billy taking another shot. He's got a bead. Here he comes. And Dundee again nails him. Hard cornet, everybody hollering. Lawler just beat it. And Lawler catches him with an uppercut. He's going for the pile driver. And we want to thank Jim Cornette for dropping by to provide some insight into what made this particular match so special. 
And uh, man, I could have sworn that he was there for all four. But, you know, they did they did this deal where it was the first time I'd ever seen this, which uh, just made the match that much more special, where the entire ringside area was filled with, well, as you mentioned, Brian, and as you were telling the folks folks most about today's show, uh, all the big stars, the Rock and Roll Express, the fabulous ones, Jimmy Hart, uh, Duke Myers, Bobby Eaton, all the, uh, you know, Coco Ware, that they were all seated around ringside, uh, the heels uh, on one, the baby faces on the other. And it just, again, it just, it was just one of those little nuances that made the match that much more special. And the fact that they brought in uh, the fabulous Jackie Fargo. And, and yes, this was set up by a tape promo where Jerry Jarrett had to go to Nashville, and, uh, which is not far for him, because I, I guess they were practically neighbors at that point. Sit on Jackie Fargo's couch, and they were talking about uh, laying odds on, on the match and that kind of thing, like Jimmy the Greek. But, uh, Anyway, I went back and watched this match recently for the first time in actually quite a while. Uh, now, the the full match is very hard to find. I, I am uploading that to my YouTube channel, uh, so you're more than welcome to check that out at Kentucky Fried Wrestling on uh, on YouTube. Uh, it, it, I'm, it, I don't know how long it will be up there, so if you're hearing this, check it out immediately because uh, WWE seems to think that because it was featured on one of their DVDs exclusive rights to it um i do have uh the we talk about the the vignette that's set with the rocky distance music uh which is one of the better produced videos of that era and it really hits home the drama of the match but it's cool to watch the whole thing um it's you know it's it's one of those deals where you know does it hold up today uh they only go about 16 minutes uh which uh was actually pretty standard uh for lawler matches uh of that time period uh, you know, if, if they had somebody special in, if it was a world title match, the King could easily go 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, this particular one, he actually starts out rather fast, which is sort of tipping its its, its hand a little bit. That This maybe is not going to go that long. Uh, because as Lance Russell points out in the commentary, Jerry is traditionally a slow starter. <laughs> uh, but this one, he comes out guns a-blazing. Dundee makes the comeback and uh, and then in dramatic fashion ends up busting Lawler open on the ringside table. It, it, it's so brutal that even Jerry Jarrett and Jackie Fargo recoil in horror at this impact. And blood, as Lance says, blood just spattered everywhere. Uh, and uh, the King hits a gusher and then rallies and ends the match in decisive fashion. As my father told me so many years ago, as I missed this match coming in from a baseball game, he ended it with a pile driver. He crammed him, as Lance Russell said, sending the superstar packing, and the King maintained his Memphis residence. Well, I already told you about my YouTube channel. You can also find me on Facebook at Kentucky Fried Wrestling. You can also find me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Great Brian Last. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden reminding you that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling.